Hey, what's going on? Thank you so much for tuning in. Good morning, good noon, or good night. Wherever you are listening, thank you so much for joining me the, Joining me this evening. <clears throat> I'm doing this podcast out of Atlanta, Georgia. So I am on the, I think, Pacific or Eastern area time zone. But anyway, um, thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Madam Butterfly, and you're listening to Frequency Bay. Um, so today we're going to get into the um, pop-up episode uh, that is the secret life of credit cards. Um, <clears throat> this particular uh, documentary was aired in 2004. It's a very, well, not a, I want yeah, a very old documentary. I was going to say, I don't want to say old documentary, but we're in 2021 going into 2022, and this aired in 2004. Um, so technically, it, it's old. Anyway, um, it's an oldie but goodie. Um, we're going to get a chance to dive into a conversation about credit cards and their not so their their nefarious secrets in relationship to uh, most banks. Credit cards and interest rates and you know late fees are how a lot of banks make their money how they're able to stay alive, it's how they're able to stay afloat, it's how they're able to operate as a business. Um, <clears throat> and it's unfortunate because, again, who's holding the bag? The taxpayers. Who's holding the bag? The general public. Um, and because the federal government isn't lobbying correctly and or making correct um because they're not governing correctly, uh, this is an issue that's kind of, well, not kind of, it's an issue that's gotten out of hand. Um, it's an issue that is a business, but unfortunately, like, the fact that it's a, it's a business isn't a problem. The problem is the, the type of business that's being operated here. Uh, the issue is the way in which they're going about such predatory ways of doing business, not necessarily business, because business can be healthy. It can when it's done in a way that's not toxic. Um, But unfortunately, um, many of the large banks within America, uh uh-oh, many of the large banks within America that exist, a lot of the practices are extremely, extremely predatory. And, um... We're going to get into that, into some of that today, uh, and you'll get a chance to listen to something that I personally think was great. Um, I haven't seen it before. Well, actually, I've seen it once before, but it was many, many years ago, um, and it's been a while, so uh, it'll be new for me again as well, um, but yeah, I guess we're just going to hop straight into it. No need to... Frontline, the average American family has eight. Zero percent for life on transfer balances. Credit cards. 
Plastic money have become both a necessity and a ticket to a better life. Hawaii! A credit card is an extraordinary, unbelievably great convenience for the consumer. But the credit card industry plays by its own rules. I don't know any merchant in America who can change the price after you've bought the item, except a credit card company. Credit card banks earn record profits. MB&A's profits last year, one and a half times that of McDonald's. Well, McDonald's did too well last year. But the profits come at a price. Now they've raised my rate to 19.98, and I have not been late ever. There are irritated, unhappy, dissatisfied customers in this industry. They are the new loan sharks in America. I certainly didn't imagine that someday we might have ended up creating a Frankenstein. Frankenstein? What do you mean, Frankenstein? Tonight, Frontline correspondent Lowell Bergman and the New York Times investigate the secrets of your credit card. seem an unlikely place to begin the modern history of the credit card. More than a thousand miles from Wall Street in the paneled halls of the Federal Reserve in Washington. But this is where the credit card business first began to really take off. This is Sioux Falls, South Dakota. A modest town of 140,000, known for its cattle auctions and meatpacking industry. It's a town which boasts a huge post office, big enough to service a city several times its size. Every day, millions of pieces of mail pass through here. From here, millions of credit card solicitations and bills are sent to mailboxes across America. And billions of dollars in credit card payments come in from around the world. Today, Sioux Falls is one of the major credit card processing centers in the country. It all happened in Sioux Falls because a quarter of a century ago, times were hard in South Dakota. There was a nationwide recession with double-digit inflation. Money was very tight. South Dakota banks were issuing very few mortgages or loans of any kind. Interest rates were going into orbit. They were climbing all the time. So Bill Janklow was then the governor of South Dakota. When I came to the governor's office, South Dakota had very tight historical laws on what you could charge to borrow. In other words, uh, there was one interest rate by law that they could charge for new cars another one for used cars. It was highly regulated what interest rates people could pay. What I'm trying to say is, uh, we may have a law that said you could charge 9%, but money cost 11%, so banks weren't loaning money. To get the banks to issue loans, South Dakota decided to eliminate its historic cap on interest rates, known as a usury law. We had actually changed some of our laws in 79, and we had previously introduced legislation and passed legislation, or were passing legislation, to lift the ceilings on usury so we could free up and get capital in South Dakota. At the same time across the country, in New York City, a legendary banker had his own problems. 
Oh, it's very simple. We're going broke. Walter Riston, then chairman of Citibank, had a credit card division that was hemorrhaging money. New York's usury laws prohibited banks from charging more than 12% on most consumer loans. Interest rates went up to 20%. Mm -hmm. And if you are lending money at 12% and paying 20%, you don't have to be Einstein to realize you're out of business. And it was yeah. costing Citibank 20% for money, and you were only well, getting 12% sure. back? <laughs> Certainly. Because that, of the limit on interest. That, yes. There was no way that you could continue. So Riston and Citibank began looking for a new place to do business. So we made a study of the five states that had either no usury law or very high <coughs> amounts. One of them was South Dakota. So he said, look, we'll bring a couple of thousand jobs out here. In 1981, Citibank moved its credit card operation from New York to South Dakota. From the time I met them until we passed our legislation, it was just several weeks. I mean, we really moved. That, that was a good deal for us. It was a hell of a deal for them. What did they get out of this? What Citibank out of it? They got to stay alive. But what really attracted Citibank to South Dakota was an obscure Supreme Court decision that said a bank could now export its interest rate to other states. It was called the Marquette decision. The Marquette Bank decision was a U.S. Supreme Court decision that said, forget where the bank is chartered. Wherever the credit decision is made, in whatever state, that's the place where you can apply interest wherever you make the loan. In other words, if South Dakota had a 25% ceiling, then you could charge 25% even to a loan in Florida. Jack Lowe realized that the Marquette decision meant that South Dakota could become the credit card capital of America. In a very short period of time, matter of a few months, I was meeting with the chairman of the Board of Bank of America, with First Chicago of Illinois, uh, Chase Manhattan Bank, Manufacturers Hanover Bank, Chemical Bank, Bank of New York, all the big banks in America, because only South Dakota at that point in time uh, appeared to be willing to, to move forward to invite people to come in. But soon, another state got into the act. Delaware copied South Dakota's legislation and Wilmington soon became the credit card center of the East, luring other New York banks and giving rise to new companies like MBNA. For the first time in American history, there were no legal restrictions on the interest rates banks could charge on credit cards nationwide. You can look at the Marquette decision and say, all right, maybe it took the lid off, but what it did was it had a very egalitarian effect. Duncan McDonald is the former general counsel of Citibank's credit card division. He says the Marquette decision allowed bankers to charge higher interest rates to riskier customers. The minute Marquette came along, you could jack the price up a little bit more to cover those people, and as a result, tens of millions of people who were paying 30 and 35% interest rates to small loan companies all of a sudden got the product at 19% at interest rate and an annual fee of $20. So in that sense, it was very egalitarian and very good. And very good for banking. As the deregulation of interest rates enabled more people to get credit cards, the industry began to expand and became the most profitable sector of banking, with $30 billion in profits last year. We wanted to talk to the executives of the major credit card banks about their business, but were directed instead to the American Bankers Association. We've asked for interviews 
with all the major credit card companies. Mm -hmm. They won't talk to us. Why? That's our job. Uh, they pay us dues to handle these kinds of sometimes difficult assignments. Ed Yingling is the incoming president of the American Bankers Association and the industry's top lobbyist. How profitable is the credit card business? The credit card business is profitable. You would expect the credit card business to be somewhat more profitable than the rest of the industry or parts of the industry because it's riskier. Uh, it is an unsecured loan, and so you would expect the returns to be a little higher. Wasn't last year record profits for this industry, and they're expected again this year? Uh, yeah, but compared to what? It is not an unusually profitable business compared to other businesses. MB&A's profits last year, one and a half times that of McDonald's. Well, McDonald's didn't do too well last year, and MB&A is a big company. Citibank more profitable than Microsoft, Walmart, and the executives are highly paid. Right, right. These are, these are really big businesses, and they do make money. Today, nearly 144 million Americans have credit cards, and they are using their cards like never before, charging $1.5 trillion last year alone. Credit cards have become an essential part of the American economy. I really can't say that I love my credit card, but I would hate to live without it. I use it a lot for work. It's easy, it's easy access. I can take clients out for dinner. I take advantage of the miles. We fly first class on vacations. It's nice to be able to spend what you don't have. Can you imagine living without a credit card in this society? It's hard to imagine. No. We sat down with a group of credit card customers to talk about how they use their cards. We're consumers. America loves to consume. It's in our blood. It is like an addiction. I mean, I have this new credit card in my pocket. and Look at that great dress. I can do it. I really shouldn't do it all. I'll just pay it off later. And you do it. Mm -hmm. I don't have that iPod. I'm not cool. Yeah. So I can charge and pay it off. And Christmas is just around the corner. There's always something. <laughs> They're just a gift. And for the traveler, which I am, a very, very, very frequent traveler indeed is what I am, uh, they are indispensable. Actor and author Ben Stein loves the convenience of using his credit cards. Credit cards are an incredible deal for me. I mean, I have lots and lots of different cards. I, I mean, my wallet is just stuffed with cards. It's just insane. It's just ridiculous. I look like I... I look like I've got a third breast from my uh, carrying around my wallet with so many credit cards in it. Thank you very much, Mr. Thank Stein. You very much. Have a nice Thank afternoon. You. Thank you very much. Stein says he charges thousands of dollars a month in business expenses on his credit cards. Well, I use all their good services, and they don't make any money from me. I mean, none to speak of. Oh, wait, here's a kind of cute one. The credit card companies do make a percentage on each transaction. But Stein is not their ideal customer, because like 55 million Americans, he pays his bills off every month and doesn't pay any interest. The credit card companies hate people like me who pay off our bills every month. And I know that because I ran into a fellow I went to high school with on the street, and he told me he worked for a credit card company. And I told him about how much I use credit cards now. I pay them off every month. And he said, oh, we, got, we hate you. We hate you guys. We call you deadbeats. Deadbeats in the upside-down world of the credit card business are the people like Ben Stein, who pay off their bills on time. The industry's best customers are the 90 million Americans who don't pay off their credit card debt. They're called the revolvers. 
People in the industry tell us that, that revolvers, people who borrow money basically with their credit card, that's where the profits are. I don't think that's where all the profits are. Well, I, think, I think it is generally understood that those that use the revolving part of the credit card uh, are, are kind of the sweet spot. Today, the sweet spot, as Mr. Yingling calls it, continues to grow, and the top interest rates charged are higher than ever before, according to Robert McKinley, who founded CardWeb, a research firm that tracks the industry. The top 10 issuers in, in the country are charging interest rates of 25 to 30 percent to some of their customers. And this is in a market where interest rates are at a 40-year low. We have consumers paying interest rates that would be considered loan sharks uh, in my day. At the same time, Americans with credit card balances are carrying a record amount of debt. How much credit card debt is the average American family carrying? About $8,000 for those who are carrying some debt. Elizabeth Warren is a Harvard Law professor. She has researched the growing credit card debt held by middle-class families and how it can lead to big trouble. And what families are discovering, even with mom and dad in the workplace, is they often can't make it to the end of the month. And so they often use credit cards to bridge the gap. They borrow to make ends meet. And then what happens is something goes wrong. Somebody loses a job, somebody gets sick, family breaks apart through death or divorce. She doing okay? Like most Americans, Jim and Juanita Mueller managed to pay their credit card bills each month until they both lost their jobs. We didn't have any emergency funds set aside, so they kind of became our emergency fund to, to fund our life while we were waiting for the employment to come along. And so you borrow from the credit card and pay the, that month, and then the job doesn't happen, so now you got to borrow more, and, and we just kept digging deeper and deeper, and we started robbing Peter to pay Paul, as the expression goes, you know, take a money from a credit card to pay other credit cards, and that just increases it. It's then that's where it really started to snowball. As the Mueller's fell behind, their credit card companies began to apply penalty interest rates and fees to their bills. Do you remember when the interest rates started to rise? Some of them, one late payment and forget your old interest deal that you had. So, um, Don't forget the fact that you had the credit card for a number of years and were paying on it regularly. We're never late, and as soon as you make what you miss one payment, it's like all deals are off. Everything goes up. I mean, some of the credit cards we had were nine percent or less. All of a sudden, they're 24, 25 percent because oh well, you're late. You've been late several months, and so now we're going to raise your interest rate, and we're charging you the late fee. And now because the interest rate and the late fees have accumulated, now you're over your limit, so there's an over limit fee. The Mueller's credit card debt eventually grew to nearly $80,000 on 10 cards. They found that they could no longer keep up with their payments and had to file for bankruptcy. They were one of a record 7 million families to file in the last five years. It wasn't that we didn't want to pay off our, our credit cards. It's We got to the point where it was impossible. It was just, I mean, short of uh, a rich relative, which neither one of us have, dying and leaving us... Uh, $100,000, nothing was going to happen because the credit card companies weren't, they weren't willing to work with us unless they got all their money as fast as possible. 
The main things that trigger a bankruptcy filing are a job loss, a medical problem, or a family breakup. Without those things, most American families can deal with their credit card debt. But high credit card debt puts them at much greater risk so that if they stumble, if they get hit by one of the other blows, they get their feet tangled up in those high interest rates and they just get sunk. Zero percent for life on transfer balances and a three, up to three percent cashback bonus. Ironically, the Muellers are still getting offers for more credit cards. You're still getting solicitations in the mail. Yeah, we got yeah. one yesterday from a credit card company that told me I would never have credit with them again. One of the last times I talked with them and told them what our situation was, they said, well, we're canceling your card, and you are, in essence, blackballed with us for life. You'll never have a credit card from us ever again. Yesterday, received a solicitation from them, 0% for life, with up to a $50,000 line of credit. Diapers, milk, and laundry detergent. $25. Oh, yeah, and that stuff he just said. Spend more time with your family. Priceless. Encouraging Americans to take on credit card debt is critical to the profitability of the industry. Hawaii! Yes. Call now to request the City Advantage World MasterCard and you can earn free award travel plus get 10,000 bonus miles. Making it easier and more attractive to spend has been the job of Madison Avenue marketers. New tool belt and chrome tool set. $126. Getting some use out of it? Priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For Father's Day, there's MasterCard. But the success of the industry has also relied on financial innovators like this man, Andrew Carr, whose peculiar genius, industry insiders say, has helped shape the way the credit card business works. Carr, a consultant who rarely consents to interviews, only agreed to talk with us if we did not identify his clients or where he is currently living. Give me an idea of, from the time you got involved, late 70s, with credit cards, the ideas, the innovations that you've come up with. Well, I convinced the client that instead of having 5% of the balance as a minimum payment, we should reduce that to 2%. It's a very dramatic change, less than half. Before Andrew Carr got involved in the industry, most bankers required that customers pay 5% of their credit card balance every month. Carr realized that if customers were able to pay less, they would borrow more. You were able to explain that it was people making low payments who were the most profitable. Having a lower minimum payment allows you to offer higher credit lines, which first of all makes your card product more attractive because people judge, even if they don't intend to use the whole line, they would rather have a higher line. The high balance accounts will be much more profitable than the low balance accounts. Because they're paying interest? Because they're paying interest on a higher balance. Today, CAR's 2% minimum is a common feature on millions of credit card bills. And every month, some 35 million Americans pay only the minimum payment. By the way, while you're running up balances on your credit cards, or currently have balances on your credit cards, do you have cash in the bank? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can wipe my debt out. So why don't you do it? I feel this is a nest egg. You never know what's going to happen tomorrow. You might need that money for something else. So even though you're paying double-digit interest and you could get rid of the balance right. or most of it, you're going to still make those payments and keep the cash in your bank account. 
Right. Andrew Carr's research showed that making the minimum payment eased consumers' anxiety about carrying large amounts of credit card debt. They believed they were being financially prudent. If you lose your job or you, you know, something bad happens, you have to have money and you don't want to live off of a credit card. So you need to have that money, you know, saved somewhere in case something happens. In fact, the industry was reaping huge profits from Andrew Carr's intuition about people's behavior. But then in the late 90s, Carr says he had a new insight. Customers were being flooded with competitive offers for low-interest cards. People were offering 12.9% interest for the first six months, 10.9% uh, on balance transfers, and I convinced a client to go straight to 0% as an introductory rate. It gave them competitive advantage. It led to, of course, the others also going to 0%. Carr knew that even though the 0% offer could easily change, people would still be attracted to the bait. When you're getting something in the mail, several times a week that offers you 0% for six months. They look at the headlines of the solicitation of the mail, they spend 30 seconds on it, and okay, I'm gonna be better off at the beginning, they're gonna give me something, they're gonna give me a 0% rate. Uh, people believe what they wanna believe. 0% APR, what does this mean? I mean, you're saying that's meaningless. In most cases, if you were to sign up for this card, the bank will honor that rate through that period of time. But there's a lot of fine print that goes with uh, what could happen. For example, if you were to miss one payment, uh, this rate will go away immediately. I remember growing up um, watching my mother and my father pay bills, and like a lot of this reminds me of what they had to go through when I was a kid. So I find it a little bit ironic listening to everything that they're saying. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that a lot of these bank institutions are preying off of the way that people's brains are wired and the psychology associated with human behavior. Um, and I also don't know why um, at any point the government doesn't intervene and decide that this is something that needs to be regulated because it absolutely is. Um, back in the day, I know we used to, or they used to rather, before I was born, they used to have regulations in regards to things like this. And then all of a sudden, the government decided that, oh, well, we want to do business with, this with these people. And then you turn around and we have the crash the 2008 you know housing crash and next thing you know we're bailing out a bunch of banks that are quote-unquote too big to fail and it's kind of just like whose fault is that at the end of the day that's the government's fault because we never took the time to go in and really regulate the way that we needed to and and, and create proper boundaries and uh, before that that situation ended up imploding um and as I'm listening to everything that he's saying, and I'm like, this, like, this is feels like you know more than anything a refresher for me personally, just because like uh, I recently took out a loan, and um, the interest rate on it isn't crazy, uh, and it's not a crazy loan, but um, it was a a loan that I took out for uh, business purposes, and like it's got me thinking now. 
now that I'm listening to uh, everything that everyone's saying. Um, but yeah, yeah, what are you thinking? What do you think that, um, do you think things like this are good? Do you think they're bad? Do you think they're, you know, they should stop it? They should continue? I personally think that the government should should step in and des- decide to regulate a little bit better. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that so many of our banks spend so much time in bed with our government because I that's that's it reminds me of like the church and state bullshit that they had to go through back in the day. Um and the fact that we're pretty much back where we started in a lot of ways is unfortunate because that just means that we're not really learning properly from our mistakes. Um when you don't learn from your mistakes, you're doomed to make them again. Um, yeah, let's get back into the, the program. According to McKinley, the key to understanding how credit cards are marketed lies in the great digital revolution, the amassing of data on American consumers. Well, there's a gold mine of information residing out there in these databases by the consumer reporting agencies, the credit bureaus. Uh, they're collecting information about what kind of accounts you have open, the balances, whether or not you make those payments on time. And that's a huge reservoir of information there that they can tap into and be able to get a sense as to whether or not a consumer is a revolver, someone who doesn't pay the balance off in full each month. So they can kind of sift those out. And, and, and today it's really become almost surgical. The ability to surgically target consumers and track their financial behavior has become a booming business dominated by three credit reporting agencies which gather information. All that data is then crunched by a little-known company called Fair Isaac, which calculates a number called a FICO score for almost every American with a credit history. We're not a credit reporting agency like an Equifax, TransUnion, or Experian that's gathering information daily on consumers and building up consumer records. Tom Quinn is a spokesman for Fair Isaac. We simply work with the credit reporting agencies, and they deploy their data onto our mathematical formula to create that score. The median FICO score is 720 out of a possible 850. The riskiest customers have scores below 600. The score is an indication of how likely you are to pay your bills. Lenders use that score almost like a thermometer to determine if they're going to grant credit or not. So the algorithm is an indication of that consumer's future risk in terms of credit behavior. Algorithm meaning a mathematical formula. Yes, mathematical formula. And how many people have this number? We estimate that approximately 75% of the U.S. population that is eligible for credit, i.e. those who are 18 years or older, have a FICO score at any given time. You know your credit score? No. You're not aware that you have a credit score? I'm aware that I have one. I don't know what it is. Right. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I, I don't know what it is either. So if I said to you the words FICO score, do you know what a FICO score is? No. I know the terms. I'm not clear on what they are. I've never gotten my credit score. An individual's FICO score often determines how much interest he will pay on a credit card. The terms and conditions of the card are laid out in the fine print of this contract. When I get a credit card, 
there's a, a contract that goes along with it. What kind of contract is this? Because I never read it. Have you ever read it when it came to you? Uh, I'd have to admit, most cases I may have just glanced at it. You know, it's filled with so many legal terms and so many pages and such small print. And it can be intimidating, I think. It says that I'm guaranteed the terms of a loan for as long as I have the card. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, things that, the one unique thing about the credit card business is that the issuer can change the terms and conditions at will. Without asking my permission? Absolutely. They can change it all. It only takes 15 days' notice to make those changes. I mean, you could be offered a 5 or 6% interest rate today and perhaps get it. Two months later, that could be 30%. There's nothing to prevent the issuer from changing those uh, conditions. Even Professor Elizabeth Warren, an expert on contract law, says she has a hard time deciphering her contract. I've read my credit card agreement, and I can't figure out the terms. I teach contract law, and the underlying premise of contract law is the two parties to the contract understand what the terms are. Have you ever read the contract that's sent to you with your credit card? Yes, but I'm a lawyer. <laughs> do you understand it? I, I do understand it. I think it'd be very hard for uh, uh, a lot of people to understand. And I think it's a constant battle to try to figure out how you make disclosures and those types of things in plain English so that somebody will uh, uh, read them. Ed Yingling. Okay, and that is uh, a central problem that the banks use to their advantage. Um, the ability to be able to understand their jargon that they use in relationship to these contracts when it comes to the customer and the clients. Um, one rule of thumb when you're doing business, if you don't understand, don't do it. Don't sign it. Don't do it. Don't agree to it. None of that. Um, anyone that ever is in a position where they are, anyone that ever finds themselves in a position where they are not understanding the terms of agreement, then you shouldn't agree to the terms. Um, and the people that they decided to pull onto this documentary and talk to, people like that are prime suspects. They're prime candidates and prime customers. Like, that is the sweet spot that they're talking about when they say that, um, that the type of customer that most banks love are customers who, um, customers who are misinformed and uneducated on how the business works in relationship to doing business with the bank. Um, and a lot of times these customers and these clients are running off of, you know, emotions and running off of what feels good as opposed to, um, as opposed to what actually matters. And, uh, I think that the people that they decided to bring on are a pretty, um, they speak to a really wide audience, in my opinion. Uh, and what I mean by that is that a lot of the people that they decide to bring on board and have as clients and things of that nature are people who are of a scarcity mindset, um, people who have had experiences with money that have been very disempowering, um, people who don't really find the joy properly inside of 
um, the relationship with money. Um, and really, when it comes to finances, when it comes to money, that's something that you should leave your emotions at the door when it comes to, you know, your 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 bringing in money, pushing out money, things of that nature. You really want to put your emotions aside and make a, a stern, solid, head-over-heart decision as, as often as possible. Because at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, money is just a tool. It's just a tool that gets you from one space to another. And oftentimes... People put money before shit that is really priceless and things that are way more important than, you know, a dollar could ever be. Um, so, yeah, that's just my two cents at the moment. I'm going to uh, get back to the actual program. And if you're, you're still with me at this point, thank you so much for continuing to listen. Uh, let's see here. We've got... We're about halfway through this documentary. We've got about 30 more minutes left. 30 more minutes of really great information. ...says the fact that the contracts are difficult to understand is not the industry's fault. Our disclosures are very explicitly set forth in law and in regulation much more so than in most consumer contracts, uh, ours are, are heavily regulated. They say the contract contains information, even the typeface, that's mandated by law. Laws but the laws, that's the point now. The laws are inadequate. There's not enough there. These guys have figured out the best way to compete is to put a smiley face in your commercials, a low introductory rate, and hire a team of MBAs to lay traps in the fine print. One of those traps, according to Warren and other critics, is something called universal default. If you do miss a mortgage payment, you do miss a car payment, any other, it can trigger what is called a universal default. They actually have the right to change it if you miss a payment with another creditor. Or, in some cases, even if there's a change in your credit worthiness. In fact, you don't have to miss a payment. You don't have to go over your credit limit to be in default. You could... For example, or maybe your balances are too high. You've seen all one of these, right, before? Mm-hmm. I want to read you something from a, a contract. Your APRs also may vary if you are in default under this agreement or any other agreement that you have with us or any other related companies for any of the following reasons. You fail to make a payment to another creditor when due. Do you understand what this means? Mm-hmm. You do. Do you know that it means that if you fail to make a payment and are late on anything else that you're paying on, your house, your car, anything else, they will find out and they can change your interest rate? Did you know that? I had no idea. I had no idea. This is the first I've ever heard that. Why is it legal? Mm-hmm. Well, because it's disclosed in the contract. It doesn't seem fair. You've, you've done no harm to the company themselves. You're late with someone else. You haven't affected your standing with that company. No, it doesn't seem fair that they would suddenly say, oh, well, now we can raise your rate. They're taking advantage of someone who is in that position. That's what Andrew Guile of Wilmington, Delaware, says happened to him. Yes. Um, 
I had gotten a letter from MBNA several months ago that my rate was going to be increased. MBNA raised his 8.9% interest rate to 19.9%, and his minimum monthly payments nearly doubled. They told me the first time that my rate had been raised because they found an occasion back in 1998 when I'd gone 60 days past due on a competitor's credit card. And I asked them, what in the world does that have to do with MBNA, especially being six years ago? I said, that has nothing to do with my account here. I mean, that absolutely took my breath away. When Guile protested, he says he was given another reason for the change. He had become riskier, he was told, because his account balances with other creditors were too high. I was a great customer at MBNA. Always paid my balances on time, paid more than the minimum balance, you know, many times paying it down completely. But I was, I was never late. I used the card in a wise and responsible manner. Frontline wanted to ask MBNA about Guile's problem, but we were told they never comment on an individual's account. But just two months after our interview, Guile says he got a call from the office of the president of MBNA saying they would move his interest rate back to 8.9%. The real question here is whether or not you can change the price, not for new items you buy after your credit score has changed, but for old credit that you've already taken out. My mortgage company agreed to an interest rate, and if I lost my job, my mortgage company does not get to double my mortgage. Credit card companies can say, remember how you bought the big screen TV at 9.8% interest? We've decided we want 29.9% interest, and there's not a darn thing you can do about it right now. The contract allows a credit card company to change the interest rate on money you borrow mm -hmm. from them after you borrowed it? Uh, some do. Yeah, it depends on the contract, but a lot of them do. If um, they find out through this information system that you've been late on your payment for your automobile, they, they can notify you and th that you're going to change the interest rate on the money they've already lent you. Uh, and I think there is a misunderstanding about what the credit card agreement is. My agreement with you is you've come to me, you have a certain credit score, and based on that credit score, I'm going to charge you 12%. If in the future it turns out that your credit score has deteriorated and you now are more risky to me, I'm going to charge you the interest rate I would charge to somebody that has that credit score. Is it fair to change the price of the deal after the fact? The product is not a promise to somebody that we will lend you that amount of mon money forever at that interest rate. It is a very short-term, revolving line of credit. It's dishonest. Plain and simple, it's dishonest. They, they may say it's good business for their financial bottom line, but it is a very poor way to treat a customer. In 1996, Another important Supreme Court decision opened the door to bigger profits for the credit card industry and a raft of new complaints from their customers. That decision, Smiley versus Citibank, much like the Marquette decision before it, lifted state restrictions this time on the fees that credit card banks could charge. We were working this thing here for a good cause, free market pricing. 
Duncan McDonald was one of the lawyers who worked on the Smiley case. The late fees that were common across the industry up until Smiley were in the $5 and the $10 range. And the economic thinking was that there had to be flexibility to allow up to $15. But when Smiley came along and took the lid off it, it went from 5 to 10 to 15 to 29 and recently it's gone up to 39 I would guess that it's probably going to go up to $50 a year and a half from now. I certainly didn't imagine that someday we might have ended up creating a Frankenstein. Frankenstein? What do you mean, Frankenstein? I look at that and I say to myself, is $50 a fair fee plus a 25% interest rate and all these other fees that are thrown on for folks who are probably not that risky? Is that fair? And I look at it and I say to myself, there's the Frankenstein. We've created something that, that, that has, to be, uh, has to be dealt with. Since Smiley, credit card companies have doubled the amount of revenue they generate from fees. Late fees, over-the-limit fees, return check fees, and the like. Fee income uh, has gone up much, much faster than interest income in the business. So the, the fees are meant as a penalty to make sure that you pay on time, or are they a profit stream? Well, they really have become a profit stream. It's not just the fees that they charge. Even though they're three and four times higher than they were uh, less than 10 years ago, that's the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the penalty that's inflicted on consumers with these uh, situations where they make a late payment. It's the penalty interest rate that really does the damage. Your interest rate could double overnight. But just so I understand, the, the, the interest rates are not regulated. They can change the interest rate relationship that you have with them with 15 days' notice. So that's a major source of profit for them. And the fees are now no longer regulated. That's exactly right. It's, uh, you know, it's wide open. Uh, we're beginning to see banks do all this tweaking uh, where they're changing uh, the interest rates and uh, uh, raising fees, adding new fees, uh, uh, all kinds of way they calculate interest, setting the due dates on a Sunday and a holiday on the hopes that uh, maybe you'll trip up and get a payment in late. It's become a very anti-consumer marketplace. Even the industry's top lobbyist is concerned. I think it would be short-sighted for a credit card company to have fees that, that uh, would make somebody angry because they're likely to lose that customer. And I think it's going to cost them more to replace that customer uh, than they're likely to get out of the fee. You have bankers who have uh, skyrocketed rates from 14% to 25% and $40 uh, uh, late fees and uh, bad check fees and so on that fall on the shoulders of the less well-off. Yes, there's something bad has happened. So we need regulation. Well, we have regulation. We have regulation already. The control of the currency regulates all the national banks, uh, and they have very vast powers. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, is an obscure Washington agency, part of the Treasury Department, and it regulates the national banks, banks like Chase, Citibank, and MBNA that issue most of the credit cards in this country. Julie Williams is the acting comptroller of the currency. We have three goals, to make sure that the banks don't fail, to ensure the integrity of how the banks operate their, their corporate governance, and to make sure that they deal fairly and honestly with their customers. At the extreme, we have the ability to take enforcement actions, and we have done that. We have taken enforcement actions. Can you give us an example 
of how you have brought a large institution to task? Uh, well, I think the, the probably the most conspicuous in, uh, example of that would be uh, the action that we took uh, in connection with Providian. That's not the story they tell in San Francisco, where in the late 1990s, the credit card company Providian Financial was experiencing double-digit growth. Providian specialized in the riskiest customers with the lowest credit scores. They were targeting people with questionable credit or marginal credit, uh, people that couldn't get bank cards elsewhere. Pat Wallace is the head of the Better Business Bureau in the San Francisco area. First thing that got our attention, of course, were the numbers, and the numbers of complaints. Providian was involved in all kinds of questionable uh, offers and policies and procedures and operations. Complaints about Providian from around the country came here to Wallace's office. Providian, for example, was accepting payments from consumers on their accounts, depositing the checks, but not crediting the account for sometimes up to several weeks. What was the net result of that? Invariably, the consumer got a late charge. They were holding payments so that they could charge late fees and they could charge overdraft fees and in a sense limit fees, 50% of their income were fees, not interest on the money loan. They were pushing the envelope and they got by with it for a period of time and they made a lot of money. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency is the main federal agency that takes complaints. Did they come to your assistance? No, they just simply weren't interested. You know, the response was, well, you know, we'll take it from here, we'll watch from here. You know, it's not a problem uh, at this time for us. Complaints about... That is the definition of a predatory practice, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and it's not unheard of that a lot of... Uh, it's not unheard of that um, a lot of companies and corporations and not just banks prey like they, they prey off of uh, impoverished people they prey off of low income individuals and America has become a, a a cesspool for predatory practices when it comes to um, doing business with uh, low-income and economically restricted places across America, a.k.a. places that have been redlined. Um, and it's an unfortunate situation. And it's unfortunate that we don't have more laws that protect the poor. Um, it's unfortunate because we live in uh, America, a place that will punish the poor for being poor before anything else. Um, they also punish the sick and the disabled for being disabled and sick before anything else. And it is um, disgusting. Uh, it's, it's disgusting at its, at its core. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that two men are able to sit and have a conversation with one another so casually about the way in which the economically restricted places um, within America have been treated so poorly.
when they are in fact our most vulnerable and our most um, at risk. About Providian, we're also coming to June Crevette at the San Francisco District Attorney's Consumer Protection Unit, and she began to investigate, eventually drawing local press attention and then a phone call from the OCC. Had you ever heard of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency? The answer from my perspective is no. Didn't really know much about it, didn't know exactly what they did and exactly who they regulated. We never heard of them being very active in the area of consumer litigation or consumer enforcement actions against the banks. And when the OCC contacted June Crevette, she says instead of cooperation, they issued a challenge. There were a couple of meetings where the subject of preemption was raised. Preemption? Yeah. That's where they say, because we're the federal regulator, that uh, they have exclusive authority over the national banks, and therefore we don't have jurisdiction. You, San Francisco, don't have jurisdiction. Yes. The San Francisco District Attorney says to us that they were told, you don't have real jurisdiction, we have real jurisdiction, and indicated to them that they might want to get out of the case. The way that that worked out was we worked together with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. It was a, a collaborative process. Uh, well, they say once you got involved, it was very fruitful. But right. what they're telling us is that the OCC only got involved once this whole situation became public, that prior to the news publicity that they were responsible for, they had no contact with the OCC. We worked um, cooperatively with them when we got information about what was going on. The joint investigation eventually culminated in a $300 million settlement. Providian declined to be interviewed and issued a statement saying, rather than revisit the past, the company is focused on services that provide real benefits today. In Washington, the OCC has been increasingly asserting its authority and attempting to curb consumer enforcement actions by local prosecutors. This has sparked a nationwide battle led by the attorneys general in all 50 states. The OCC is now trying to squeeze out the state presence to prevent us from protecting consumers, which I think is ultimately very injurious to consumers. Elliot Spitzer is the attorney general of New York State. We get thousands of complaints every year about credit card issues relating to the major banks, the major card issuers. And so we get these complaints and we try to deal with the credit card companies. But increasingly over the past number of years, what we have heard back from the major banks in a variety of contexts is that we don't need to deal with you because the OCC has told us, indeed has directed us, not to deal with state enforcement entities. Isn't this just a turf battle between the states and a federal agency? It's a one-way turf battle. And by that, what I mean is we are more than happy to acknowledge that the OCC has jurisdiction across the financial system when it comes to certain issues. What the OCC is trying to do is squeeze the states out in the one area where we have been incredibly useful, which is consumer protection. The state attorneys general 
Mr. Spitzer and others say that people in our state know who we are. We have a consumer complaint office. And our beef is, is that you guys, the OCC, want to push them out of the business of consumer complaints. We don't want to push them. All right, folks. So we are nearing the end of this wonderful podcast and this wonderful documentary. Um, I definitely want you guys to stick around and continue with me here. um, And we will get right back to it. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, hello, and thank you so much for tuning in with me once again. Let's get right back into it. Um, We are listening to, or we are currently listening to um, Secrets and Predatory Practices Exposed, Credit Card Edition. All right, let's get back into it. Got about 10 minutes left or so. Uh, Yep, 10 minutes or so left. Um, And then we should be finished. So um, after that, I'll, um, I got a little something that I want to show you all and get your your opinion on. So we'll get to that when we're finished. But uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. Them out of the business. Uh, we are both there uh, protecting consumers. What we have, have been striving to do uh, is to... Uh, individually uh, and uh, in uh, developing arrangements with the states, look at the best way to work cooperatively with them. In January of 2004, the OCC declared itself the exclusive regulator of all the national banks, effectively immunizing the big credit card issuers from most state consumer protection laws. The OCC cited the Providian case as proof of its commitment to consumers. I was dismayed that they used Providian as the, uh, the prime example of their ability and their will to enforce uh, the laws that pertain to consumers. To you, they weren't the white knight who came into San Francisco and saved consumers from Providian? No, we were. Since the Providian case, the OCC says it has been more aggressive recently issuing an advisory admonishing the banks for misleading the public about practices like 0% introductory rates and universal default. The OCC itself has acknowledged that these practices are, as they describe it, very troubling, but notice what they didn't do. They didn't say, and we're going to prohibit them, stop them. Those are unfair practices. They are unsafe and unsound and don't do them. Instead, they said, it's a problem. Look, if they think it's a problem, then tell the credit card companies to stop doing it. Why don't you simply stop them? Why don't you ban these practices? When we see practices that are potentially problematic, we take a variety of actions. So you could tell them to stop and they would have to do it. If we had a basis for uh, concluding that a bank was involved in a practice that was unfair or deceptive, uh, if it violated any of the other many consumer protection standards that apply to them, we can tell them to stop it immediately. Whatever the OCC is doing, Pat Wallace says it hasn't stopped the Better Business Bureau from being deluged with complaints. It's not an accident that the banking credit card business 
generates more complaints nationally across the country than any other industry. Now, what does that say to you? Out of a thousand industries that we track, they're number one. I'd say there's a problem here. These things aren't an anomaly. All these complaints have some basis in fact. There are irritated, unhappy, dissatisfied customers in this industry, and we see it. The Better Business Bureau tells us credit cards and banking and credit cards together, number one problem. Of all types of complaints? Yeah. I would have thought it was like cable satellite installation. No, I guess or you guys, use car dealers your members apparently are amongst the That's, uh, I would not have thought that, uh, that that was the case. Critics like Elizabeth Warren believe that there would be fewer complaints if the credit card industry clearly disclosed how its business works particularly when it comes to the minimum monthly payment. If people knew that the cost of minimum monthly payments was that they would still be paying for yesterday's trip to the shopping mall for the next 35 years, some people might decide to pay a lot more than the minimum. And the industry knows that. That's why they don't want to tell. You advertise in your bills what the minimum monthly payment is but you don't tell people how much that might cost you if you stuck to that minimum payment. Why not? The disclosure would be wrong 99% of the time because nobody, almost nobody, pays exactly the minimum, that minimum, every month for the 20 years and never charges another thing. This is going to be a hyper-technical, expensive disclosure that nobody would understand. So we are against disclosures that nobody would understand and that are wrong. We are for disclosures that help people understand. It's that simple. This is a nonsense argument. In the line directly under the line that says minimum monthly payment, there's a simple sentence that can be added. If you make minimum monthly payments, it will take you how many years, 35 years, and how many months to pay off this bill. The man who takes credit for inventing the 2% minimum payment thinks more disclosure is useless. This is a fascination that every now and then uh, someone with an ax to grind or someone who thinks he's going to help consumers has on his mind. But if we had a tape and we ran a computer on transcripts of 10,000 customer service calls with questions, Okay, I don't think you'd ever hear that question. So I'm kind of baffled at the artificiality of it. I don't think that's what consumers want to know because they don't expect to make minimum payments forever. Do you know if you made the minimum payment, for instance, on your bill, how long it would take you to pay it off? I'm not in a hurry to find out. I'm just going to pay it off. Would you like to know? Sure. Curious, yeah. Mm -hmm. It would inspire me to put down more. It would inspire me. And I think that's probably why they don't put it down. It would inspire a lot more people to pay more than the minimum. Virtually everyone who holds a credit card one way or the other under existing laws today and provisions can be completely taken advantage of by the credit card industry. So there is a deception going on to get you into the game. Once you're in, and I've got you in, then, then if you get out, I charge you. If you don't meet your obligations, I charge you. You move left, you move right, I've got you. So what are you going to do about it? Well, I've got legislation, so i got a bill. There's <laughs> always a quick answer here, and I don't know how far it'll go because I've tried this in the past. I'm not new to the issue. 
a good deal of the blame for the crisis of credit card debt we're seeing in America lies in how the practices are followed by credit card companies. In the summer of 2004, Senator Dodd introduced a credit card reform bill that would, among other things, require credit card companies to disclose how long it would take consumers to pay off their balance. But he is not optimistic that the bill will pass. His many previous attempts to reform the credit card business have all failed. Why haven't you or other lawmakers been able to put some regulation into place? Is it their political power? Sure, there's no question about it. I mean, every time we've tried to offer legislation, this industry has become very, very powerful. And, uh, and it, it's very successful in defeating every legislative attempt that's been made over the last several years to inject some responsibility on the part of this, uh, this credit card industry. You critics say that you block every attempt to pass industry reform or consumer protection legislation. You block minimum monthly payment re legislation, interest cap rates, and a ban on marketing to college students. Uh, we've done our best to, to block bad bills. Those are bad bills. And we'll continue to do our best to block them. Bad for? Bad for consumers. I want to promise you something today. You know, keep on defeating me and keep on defeating ideas like this, and you'll look back and wish we had passed this legislation. Because I'll tell you, Congress will come along, and they'll take steps far more egregious, in their view, than anything I'm suggesting. I'm discussing disclosure. You just let people know what the deal is. I think there's a time when the American consumer is going to hit the tipping point on this issue, and it's no longer going to be all right for credit card companies, once they're in financial trouble, to change the interest rates, to load them on with fees and penalties, to just decide that the terms of the contract they originally signed are no longer the terms of the contract. I think that day is coming. Even an industry insider like Duncan McDonald, who worked at Citibank for nearly 30 years, is deeply concerned. I know enough about the industry and the lawyers in the industry, and there have to be people sitting there saying, we've got to find a way to deal with this. Have we reached that point? I don't know. But my guess is there's a debate going on. And I hope there's a debate going on. What a tragedy it would be if there isn't. The tragedy would be what? The status quo gets worse. The status quo is bad, and then it gets worse. Profits keep to 25% uh, bad rates become 30% bad rates, and late fees become $50 and $60 and so on. Back in South Dakota, a man who helped the industry take off in the 1980s has mixed feelings about what he helped create. Do you ever reflect on the fact that you know, this great success, which has been a great benefit to your state, at the same time has helped create a way of borrowing money, spending money that may have gotten out of control? I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, it's, we've become a plastic society. We've become a plastic society. A lot of times when I give people cash, they look at you. Cash? Cash? You were instrumental in making this happen in many ways. Okay, I didn't think of any of this when it happened, and I'm still glad what we, I still like what we did, and I still think it was a huge opportunity for my state. Now, if we're talking about the industry and 18, 19, 20 plus percent interest, do I think that's a healthy thing for human beings? The answer is no. I don't think that's healthy at all.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, and there you have it. Um, so that is the end of today's program. Um, thank you so much for continuing to listen in with me. Um, this was very informative and very educational, in my opinion. Um, and a couple of things that I noticed. Um, there's a weird disassociation that is connected with people who were involved in um the process of all of this. Um, and it's really unfortunate because it's almost as if it's become a doggy dog type of situation. And I think that has a lot to do with the people who are in charge of all of this. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, and lying by omission is technically still lying. Um, a lot of these banks and businesses and businesses that do business with banks are are lying by omission to the American people. As you heard the young woman say, she said that it would inspire her to make more payments and put more money down if she was more informed about what she was doing. But unfortunately, it's a situation with her and people like her where they are being um, blindly led in a rigged game of Simon Says in the Dark. Um, and, you know, part of that is because these banking institutions, they don't want informed customers because an informed customer is going to make an informed decision. And an informed decision keeps the ball out of the court of the client and or guest and or customer that is doing business with these banks. And they're more likely to end up holding the shit end of the stick. Um... And that's really just kind of the name of the game, unfortunately, in relationship to all of this. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, I had something that I was going to um, involve in uh, this particular program and ask you guys' opinion on, but um, basically um, it doesn't really fit the, the vibe of what everything that I've got going on. So I'll probably do it a different time. Um, check for me on uh, Twitter. The Twitter, I do do the tweets, uh, Frequency Bay, um, and or Mama Cup, which is my personal page. Uh, and yeah, just like definitely come say hi in the future one of these times. Uh, I definitely love talking to y'all in my DMs and in my comment section and whatnot about the different shows that I have and whatnot. And, like, I all, I'm i always for, like, a great discussion, especially, like, on Twitter or on Facebook or something like that. Uh, definitely check out my Facebook page. Definitely check out my Twitter account, my Instagram account. And be looking for um, my YouTube page that's coming in the future. Uh, actually, my YouTube channel, my YouTube page. I don't know what the fuck. But be checking for my YouTube pages, or <laughs> I keep saying pages. Be checking for my YouTube channels that are coming up in the future uh, around February. One around February. The second one doesn't have a date, but you can be checking for me around the first week of February of the new year, two thousand and twenty-two. 
Um, definitely excited for it. Uh, and I'm definitely expecting good things to come. But uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Madam Butterfly out.